0: Hello and welcome to the big interview from an Irishman abroad. Every single Sunday, we bring you the biggest names in Irish life and beyond and their stories here on the Irishman abroad podcast network. Well, today we have a character for you. Eddie Hayes grew up in the Irish-American enclave of Jackson Heights, Queens, and graduated from the University of Virginia and Columbia Law School. And he worked as an assistant district attorney in the Bronx before moving into private practice as a defense attorney. But there's so much more to this man than just that, including Tom Wolf's character of Tommy Killian in The Bonfire of the Vanities being based upon him. He played a central role in settling the estate of Andy Warhol and has represented the likes of P Diddy, J Lo, Robert De Niro and many, many more. In New York, when somebody had a problem, they would often say, Get me Eddie Hayes. In Andy Warhol's diary, he mentions that Eddie Hayes, when he first met him, said, I can get you out of anything. This man has lived a life and in his memoir, Mouthpiece, he recalls the horrendous childhood uh, he suffered at the hands of his alcoholic father. It's an unbelievable read. I really recommend you pick up Mouthpiece if you can. He is also a good friend of our friend Marion McKeown, and she is the one that set up this interview. I wanted to just get the opportunity to talk to this man. He uh, has so much to say. I'm delighted that we were able to grab an hour with him. Uh, You can hear the full conversation, of course, over on Patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad, but here on iTunes and the free providers, we give you a good chunk of the first half of our interview. I hope you enjoy it. It's the Eddie Hayes episode of An Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your program, what's the big idea? Well, they're going to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works.
1: I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game.
0: I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job... Ed Hayes, it's fantastic to have you on The Irishman Abroad. Which do you prefer, Eddie, Edward or Ed? Eddie. 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 Okay, very good. Well, uh, you know, Eddie, I've prepared for this interview mainly through Marion McKeown, our good friend, our mutual friend and our listeners, someone our listeners will know really well. And she had told me uh, about you some time ago and I picked up your memoir, and I was surprised to read in the first chapter just how much violence was such a part of your upbringing as a as a kid moving about the city. When you consider how much you became a negotiator and somebody who found the diplomatic solution to a lot of problems for people, there's an, quite a lot of, there's only one way to sort this out, and that was through your fists.
1: Well... My attitude towards negotiations is I always use the same phrase. Let's be reasonable. There's no sense in making this into a problem. Okay, my attitude is if we can be reasonable, we're going to be reasonable. If we can't be reasonable, we're going to fight.
0: And that's uh, that's obviously learned the hard way, because those streets that you grew up on were not reasonable places and neither was your home. I mean, it is like the opening of the memoir. And we won't just talk about the memoir here in this interview, but it it really is. It's an amazing read, but it really grabs you by the lapels in that first moments and you describing, you know, the abuse that you suffered at the hands of your father, I'd imagine dredging that up and trying to write it in such a way that it it really brought home to people exactly how severe the abuse was, was extremely difficult.
1: Oh, it was very difficult. I mean, I whenever I talk about my father uh, and my mother's reaction to it, I, I frequently start crying. So <laughs> if I start crying during this interview, you know what it is.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you obviously didn't... Write it by yourself. You had you had help to do to do the book, and I'd wonderful imagine that woman. was invaluable.
1: No, I had a wonderful woman named Susan Lehman who I just adore.
0: You know, Susan captures your voice, though. I mean, that's the the mark of Absolutely. a really great writer. Obviously, is like you don't for a moment. I, I like I couldn't believe that she was involved because it just seemed to come directly from your heart and, you know, the heartfelt moment in that opening uh, prologue is the kind of solemn and silent promise to yourself that the world is going to be more than this for me. This is not going to be the end of me and I am going to go out and get more that's something that maybe do you arrive at later in life the realization that this is where this ambition was born or is that something you consciously knew at the time
1: no <laughs> at the time i only knew that my home was the most dangerous place in my life and uh actually the street was pretty dangerous too cuz i had so many fights and i lost so many fights so i what i used to do is uh, go to the library and uh, read and then I'd come out for a while, I'd get in a fight and lose, go back to the library. <laughs> I was not... When you read about guys that, that were in 100 street fights, uh, uh, it was me, but I lost 99.
0: <laughs> that world must have felt like Rome, in that it was so... The establishment, the way it was, accept it or get out. But it was kind of the last days of a certain time. You You really lived through... The last of a lot of things.
1: Well, for one thing, is New York City was much more a white ethnic city then. I mean, you had very strong uh, Italian and Irish uh, presences, and many of whom were, you know, not that far away from their immigration. And um, so that was different. Now you have mostly Hispanic immigrants, and uh, they, uh, you have dominic, well, you have Dominicans mostly and Mexicans, but. The Puerto Ricans have been here for quite a while, but the Dominicans are now a very powerful force in the city. They're, they're the largest incoming
0: group in the police department. The Irish part of this, though, comes up time and time again, and is such a you know central part of your understanding of your identity. You were conscious of you know freedom fighters, you know the the IRA come out, you black and tans, the the songs and the. The legend that that came with it, how rudimentary was the understanding now when you when you look back on it.
1: Well, I think that relatively early I became conscious of uh, the fight for Irish freedom. Now, the words I'm, I'm, I don't drink, but if you ever went into a bathroom and any uh, Irish bar, Brits out, you could rest assured it would be on the walls, and uh, I did take up an interest in. Uh, in that fight, relatively early in life. Now, one big difference is this: I understand that in Ireland, the IRA is not that popular. While in New York, the IRA was seen as an almost um, religious force. That you know, you believed in Ireland, you believed in the Irish Republican Army. So mm-hmm. uh, that's something that, that was different here. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of policemen were involved in smuggling, smuggling guns to the IRA.
0: Yeah, I mean, we I guess we we only have like books like yours to understand exactly what it meant to be Irish to the Irish community then, and it nearly seemed more Irish than the Irish themselves in that uh, the connection to uh, the imagery, uh, the shamrock and uh, the colours and flags Were they omnipresent at the time?
1: Well, remember, at that time, the police department was very heavily Irish-American, particularly some of the elite units like Homicide. Uh, And there was still a very strong presence in the unions. And in fact, I think there's still a pretty strong presence in the unions. So at that time, that ethnicity was much more obvious. And for whatever reason, uh, a lot more, people, a lot more of these individuals felt their Irish roots. Uh, so you were presented with the history and uh, what was seen as Irish with cultural values, which is primarily loyalty mm. and the ability to get angry.
0: So, what was the view like when you think about you know the the path that you went uh, and the way he, you describe you as kind of nearly stumbling your way through law school. Without any real, like, passionate interest, at the time you say, you know, time and time again, you, you had extracurricular interests, and the people that you encountered at law school, like, seemed like bizarre kind of other planetary people. That well,
1: yeah, I, uh, I hated law school. I was a dismal failure as a law student. Uh, purely by accident, because I could almost get no other decent job, I became an assistant district attorney. And uh, when I became an assistant district attorney, I found out I had two skills. One is I could talk to a jury. They would believe me and trust me. And the second is I could investigate things and find out what happened. And, you know, those were uh, sort of traditional Irish-American skills. And in law school, it was overwhelmingly Jewish. And overwhelmingly, the desire was to go to work for a big law firm and make as much money as you could. Mm. And I guess I wanted to make money because it's why I didn't go into service. But uh, I couldn't see – first of all, I don't like bosses, right? So I couldn't see going into a large firm and taking orders from some uh, uh, soft guy who's a partner. And uh, I wanted to live my life on my own. And I went into uh, the DA's office, and I, I did very well. I was in homicide very young. And uh I went into business myself, so it r- led me on the right path.
0: Mm. Talk to me a little bit though about the ability to talk to a jury and as you say, the ability to investigate things. What did you ad- what do you attribute that skill to? And was that well, I one I always that... pretend that I was talking about
1: know, you can always talk up to people. It's the ability to talk to working class people. My mother was working class. She was uh, packages in uh macy she's a big department store in new york for her entire life i think most of the time for a minimum wage my father was a drunk so he didn't do much of anything but i understood through them what it's like to have heartache and uh, mm. deal with people above you that were always sort of pushing you around so it was easier for me to learn to talk to people because that's what i was
0: used to yeah i mean these cases though I mean, it's easy to talk to people on the one hand, but these cases are not, you know, your average, hey, let's talk about this kind of cases. These are <laughs> difficult truths and often seriously fraught situations. What attracts you to to it when you go for homicides specifically? Is it literally just the Eddie Hayes desire for excitement?
1: Yes, I think that's a big part of it, and a big part of it was I was I grew up in a very violent household. I had lived a very violent kind of ineffectual life. And I found out I was in a business where I could be around something that was very harmful to people, the people that lived, uh, the families of people that died. And I was a champ. I mean, if you were in trouble on that level and you ran into me, you, you just your life took a big step forward.
0: Mm. You say you were investigating and, you know, at different points in the memoir, again, you you detail kind of hanging with these homicide cops and uh, nearly presenting yourself without uh, kind of, you know, just glossing over exactly your role so as to get admission to crime scenes. Were you picking up on things that the cops weren't seeing or were you just surveying what they'd already seen? Well, I
1: think being a homicide detective is a vocation. Some people God makes to be homicide detectives. And I learned from them rapidly what to look for, and and in particular, to look for what wasn't there. In other words, somebody's reaction, if they had no reaction to a homicide, that was very telling. Hmm. Now, also, you were obviously looking for a murder weapon. You were looking to get inside somebody's head so you could hit the right place and, and they'd confess that, that's what you learn in homicide. I mean, it helped me a lot as a trial lawyer because I learned to talk to witnesses and I learned to talk to jurors and it helped a lot too. Cause relatively early in my career, I started to get really big cases. I had some of the biggest cases in New York for the last 40 or 50 years. And it, it, it helps a lot to say, well, look, I'm going to actually go out myself or send somebody to find out what happened. And I'm going to talk to that person and I'm going to uh, find out something I need to know.
0: Mm, yeah, so these, like this, again, to remind people of this New York. I mean, there's certain documentaries made about certain things available right now on Netflix that I think capture some of what, you know, the Times Square, for example, of the time looked like. These, some of these crimes the scenes that you describe being in these people are really at the bottom rung they've slipped through the cracks and have very little hope can you describe to us a little bit of how how that new york functioned and what it looks like compared to today
1: it, 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 it didn't function i mean the whole point of it is that a lot of people did not have the services available to them that they have now which by the way they don't have that much now, but they had almost nothing then. I mean, I can remember going into apartments and hallways and being, you know, they smelled of urine, uh, you go into the apartments, you had people sleeping on couches and floors. So you, you saw a part of life that most people didn't see. And also I'll tell you something else. I am very sympathetic to the police because you send police in there to do something about that mm-hmm. and nobody else can. I don't know why you can expect the police to. I mean, you know, social workers can't deal with it. The city can't deal with it. Why do you think the police can deal with it? I mean, look, okay, I'm going to say something that's going to be very unpopular. George Floyd was going to die in the street. He's either going to get shot by another street-level gangster or he's going to get shot by a cop. George Floyd went to jail for what's called a home invasion. He broke into a house with a couple of other guys stuck a pistol to the stomach of a pregnant woman and used that as a way to force them to give them valuables. Now that's a, a very dangerous life choice. And you have to understand that that's what people deal with. I mean, I'm not just justifying what that cop did in Milwaukee. That was obviously outrageous, but they could have just grabbed them and threw them into a car. But the fact of the matter is that's what they deal with. And of course, some of them are going to be uh, deviate from normal human standards when you do that. Mm. Cops do, and, and people did. So I think you don't have to accept it, but you have to realize it's going to happen.
0: Yeah, sure. And like, I feel like this idea that cops do things that aren't good and that are illegal, it's nearly like there's been a reawakening to this idea in the last, you know, two to three years. But I'd imagine that the corruption, the stuff that is, again, connected with that period that you were working in homicide is is something completely different to what we're seeing now, especially with the existence of, you know, body cameras and actual paper trails uh, for what cops well, there were was doing. Not,
1: there was not much corruption then. I mean, no. so that somebody would do something for money or for some kind of... Uh Material benefit, that was not common then, and it's very uncommon now. What is, was common then, and what has always caused problems, is, is force. Right. One of the things is this. You cannot maintain control of the streets without force. I don't care what anybody says. If you go up to somebody and say, please be a community-minded citizen and move off the street, it's, a lot of people are just not going to do it. I mean, whether you like it or not, you have a lot of people that are damaged by drugs, they're damaged by genetic inheritance, and they're just not going to do it. Now, how do you get them off the street? How do you get somebody, when you arrest them, to surrender rather than fight you? Well, that's when force comes in. Some people are, uh, uh, some perhaps misuse it. Very few, but some do.
0: When do you... Ha, say enough is enough is there a point or is there a particular crime that takes place where you go i i i, I can't do this anymore
1: well there's a point global the law uh, you're supposed to subdue somebody not have freedom to death i will tell you that when
0: i I've oh, oh no i i mean i mean just in your career eddie i i mean the, like you know you're working in homicide and you know, there there has to be a desensitization. They're just It's impossible to see the things you saw to work on the cases you did without feeling a certain numbness at some point. Was that what eventually took you away from it?
1: No, I, I think what took me away from it was I wanted to go on with my life. And uh, I once said to a bunch of cops once came to me and said, well, we think you should be a policeman. And I said, look, I've, nobody's going to take care of my mother except me. There's nobody in my mother's life that's capable of giving doing for her what I'd like to do. And I think that's why, why I left, not just because of my mother, because, you know, greed and the normal human failings, but uh, I had learned by that time I could do things that other people couldn't do and I would do things that other people wouldn't do. And um, I said, well, <laughs> I'm going to move this to another level. And I did. Remember, relatively quickly, I started to move amongst the highest echelons of a certain kind of New York law. And I mean, I was never a corporate guy. I never was in with these big corporate law firms with, you know, huge amounts of lawyers and endless papers. I couldn't have done that. I I always said to this, if I got to read or write more than three pages, I won't do it. I never, I never wrote a letter longer than two pages. I would just say, hey, look, you don't. We don't agree. Let's go to trial. I had lived a life that most lawyers did not know. I mean, I lived. Uh, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I've never had a cup of coffee. Uh, I don't use drugs. But I did stay out late. Uh, I did uh, go, go with women from all levels of society, and I, I was just a willing guy. I was ready. I mean, uh, that was uh, Tom. Used, Tom Wolfe used to refer to me as Ready Eddie. If you said, "Will you do this?" I always said yes. Even if I had no idea how to do it. I
0: mean, so many people don't possess that green light that you're describing there. Why do you think you didn't have uh, the fear?
1: I, I grew up, I had no choice. What was I going to do? That's where I lived.
0: I guess hedge your bets was is what most people do. They go say yes to some things and say no to others. I mean, Tom Wolfe obviously recognized and loved this in you. Was he there as it all it all starts no. to take off for you? No. Or when do you two he, he, first? Yeah, come he wasn't to
1: there until I left the DA's office. Was working for myself, and uh, he. I met him through a friend of mine, a quite a good painter. And uh, we became, he was working on Bonfire Advantage, which I think is uniformly held to be his best book. Uh, he was a great reporter, and everybody knows how I love reporters. So uh, uh, that's when I got close to him.
0: So when you say the upper echelons of society, who, where is the first place that you find yourself where you're like, how did I get here?
1: The honest truth, I think, is at nightclubs,
0: staying out late at night, going to places that
1: other people didn't know existed, being involved with women that other men would find intimidating, and then also being able to go into court and take cases that other people were afraid of and I wasn't afraid of.
0: Do- those cases when you say other people were afraid of, is that specifically organized crime or is that more? No, I no. was
1: never big on organized crime. I mean, first of all, I don't find that way of life very attractive, and I think lawyers that get sucked into it almost always have heartache. So I never really was involved very much with Italian American organized crime. The only organized crime I was involved with really was the police department. From relatively early on, I had very strong police connections, and they it was not so much that they were corrupt because they weren't corrupt. They it was a culture that was pretty violent. Now remember. By and large, it was an Irish Italian force. Many of whom had grown up in the same neighborhoods. They knew each other. They knew people just like each other from childhood. And many of them had policemen in their families. So uh, it was not. It was a culture I was accustomed to. I, I, I was the smartest kid in the neighborhood when I was, you know, ten. I was the smartest the lawyer on the block by the time I was thirty, and uh, they all came to me the other thing is i don't know <laughs> people i don't know nothing what i do know i don't know <laughs> right so they know they 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 knew i would never talk you know if they did something uh, it was nobody was going to know but me
0: so i have a couple of friends who are uh you know lawyers over in dublin and you know they they work in crime they work in criminal law and i often ask them you know well, what is it like when you know you're defending, you know, the bad guy? Inverted commas. Do you just quickly come to the point of realizing everybody deserves good legal representation, or is there at any point a part of you that's like, uh, uh, this, this, this guy? I, uh, I don't, I don't like. Look, I, don't I don't get do, a good feeling.
1: I don't do crimes. I don't do crimes against women. I don't do crimes against children. That's Basically, that's my rules.
0: Those are your rules. Oh,
1: the other thing I won't do is, I don't care if a cop does something wrong, but one thing I will not tolerate is a cop that frames somebody, accuses somebody or tries to accuse somebody when they didn't do it. That's absolutely
0: unacceptable. To me. Um, was that frequent? No, it was not frequent. How good, though, is the is your radar at this point in your life? When you you're in there now, you've you've done your time in homicide, and you know you're setting up your own practice. And you know you must start to feel like, as you say, you've got these skills, a certain set of skills, Liam Neeson style, where you know your gut must be, you know, your best friend. Do you, is that a sense that you have at that point?
1: Yes. At that time, look, remember, I grew up, I had to be extra sensitive to certain kinds of risks because I was going to get hurt. <laughs> it's one thing you think, well, someone's going to yell at you. Another thing you think, you're going to take a beating. So by the time I was a grown-up, I had many years of experience, starting from young childhood, of being alert. And I was always very alert. I, could, I would notice what was going on around me. And look, I, I, I'm not, I always say I'm not an accident. I didn't get here by mistake. I was able to sense things and do things and understand human nature better than other lawyers.
0: So the list of clients that get connected to you, Eddie, you you already know the people I'm about to list because it seems to be all anybody wants to talk to you about at times. It seems to be the question you get asked the most. But what you're referring to in your last answer is this whole idea that Eddie Hayes can fix things for you, or as Tom Wolfe, or as Andy Warhol put it, <laughs> get you out of anything. Do you remember saying that to Andy Warhol? Because it's obviously detailed in his notes that you did
1: say it. Well, it's in his, it's in his diary yeah. that I, he met me at a party. You, if you want to hear the story of how I met him, there was a woman who I used to see in my neighbourhood. And she had a very striking look because she had sort of big hair and big curly sort of hipster hair. And I was fascinated with her. And finally, I see her go into a building. I, I have a knife on you know, me. I use the knife to tick the lock to get into the building. I then go upstairs in the building and I hear a party. I go into the party looking for her. All right? While I'm walking around the party, somebody grabs me by the buttocks. Now, I was pretty good looking as a, as a young guy. I wasn't that good looking, but I was, somebody grabs me by the buttocks. And I turned around and said, used an expletive, which I don't, I'm hesitant to use on the phone. Okay. And I said, what are you, you know, what are you doing? Uh, you know, don't, you know, and uh, it was Andy Warhol. I had no idea who the guy was. I mean, I knew when I saw him that it was somebody, but I didn't really know who Andy Warhol was. So that's how I met him. And, uh, and uh, you know, eventually... I came in I'll came i tell you how I came into contact with him more. The guy that was his manager and his sort of business manager and was a very, very able man, was also a repressed homosexual and had te- tendencies towards drunkenness. He used to get drunk at clubs and, the ba- and come on to the bouncers, and they'd literally throw him in the street. Now, a lot of the bouncers were cops, and I used to go down to them and I said, look, I don't care what the guy it's not your business what he does. If he grabs you by the crotch, pull his hand off, throw him in a taxi, I will come down and straighten it out. I am always there for you. I want you guys to do what I've asked. And they did. So now the guy thought I walked on water. So uh, when Warhol died, it was the first phone call he made. <laughs> I made him talk to my wife. My wife was pregnant. And I said, oh, my God. I said, Fred, I don't know anything about this kind of lawyer. He said, you have to come in and help me. I turn, I said to my wife, honey, I, I got to go in here. She says, I'm pregnant. You. you can't leave me. So I said to Fred, talk to my wife. <laughs> so he did.
0: <laughs> so this, this Fred Hughes uh, person changes your life forever, Eddie. And I don't feel like you've ever been asked about the point of leaving your pregnant wife. Like, I am aware that you get this call on the night that Andy Warhol tragically passes. And I don't know if we've heard... You know what you're walking into when you go down there. You well, throw on a suit. Well, you... first of all, first of all,
1: I call some of the homicide detectives. I say, look, fellas, meet me at this location. I want absolute control of this location. I don't want anybody to go in. I don't want anybody to come out. I don't want anybody to leave with uh, with anything, unless I say so. That's it. I don't care what you have to do to people. Nobody goes in and out of that building. And if you leaves wherever he goes, I want you guys to go with him. And you may have to hurt somebody. Right. So he did. When he uh, left the building, it was, you know, still homicide detectives with him. And uh, I'll tell you another funny story. I said to the detectives, I said, look, give the place a toss, find out what's in here. So they did. And one of them came up to me and said, Hey, you better come see us. And I came and it was a bunch of videotapes of teenage boys with gigantic penises and, uh, I said, well, I guess that was you. Warhol's taste. I said, throw them out.
0: <laughs> throw them I in said, a bin.
1: Get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's it. Nobody's ever going to see them. Get rid of
0: them. So so, uh, so, so, so you say so. to the cops this, like you're able to say to these cops, do this, do that. Why? Like why, why are they doing what you tell them to do?
1: Well, first of all, I was in a position where I was obviously the lawyer and had some kind of authority. And frankly you know I was like I'd say I, I was smarter than, than other lawyers and I was tougher than other lawyers so people tended to go along with me right in my line of work you got to be right right if you're right often enough for long enough people just tend to do what you say
0: um, this this Warhol situation is something that I like it'd be wrong if I didn't ask you about it you know, you detail it so well in the book, and it's been covered in so many. There's like there's so many column inches devoted to the handling of this appraisal of the value of his estate, and how is it Christie's auction house decide that it's this figure? You decide it's something else. By the way,
1: I was I was I was right. I mean, there's no question that I was right. But Christie's did Christie's in order to get the contract to sell the work. Gave them a low appraisal value, and hmm. that wasn't just because of they wanted to not pay me. That was part of it, but also they wanted to be able to do favors for their friends. So let's say you wanted to give somebody a painting or a, a drawing, and the drawing was really worth two hundred fifty thousand. Well, you'd appraise it at fifty thousand and let them buy it at fifty thousand, and you know that was a big favor.
0: I mean, Eddie, only for you saying it. People aren't going to believe it. We've so much more to talk about here because, as you've said, the shadiest, most scuzzy behaviour uh, of the art industry puts the street stuff that you previously talked about in the halfpenny place and we're going to talk about all of that in the second half of my conversation with Eddie Hayes. You need to pop over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad to hear it and of course you'll get the Excel version of Irishman in America with Marion McKeown every Friday, Sonia Sullivan on a Tuesday and access to our full archive but come on over today it's how to support the show and continue uh, the work of Irishman Abroad.